You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in beautiful Santa Monica. Please be seated. we got a great show for you today. Um, with us from Washington, D.C. are Laura Rosenberger, and she is the Senior Fellow and Director at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, along with Jamie Fly, Senior Fellow of the German Marshall Fund. And they'll both be explaining a little bit about the German Marshall Fund and the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And they are working on a, a tool that is getting a lot of attention. Hamilton 68, which is a platform or dashboard that provides near real-time look at Russian propaganda efforts online, particularly focused on Twitter. Um, guys, are you with us? Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And um, so this, this Hamilton, just very quickly, Hamilton 68 has only been out for about a month now, right? That's correct. Yeah, we launched it at the beginning of August. And you're getting it's already getting a lot of attention. But let's start with start back up a little bit some basics. So, um, what is the German Marshall Fund? The German Marshall Fund is an organization um, that works on transatlantic relations uh, between the United States and, and Europe, uh, really focusing on carrying forward the mission of the Marshall Plan, which of course was the plan to rebuild Europe um, after World War II. And it you know, was a real important effort aimed at um, the kind of open democratic rule of law respecting um, prosperous Europe we see today. And the German Marshall Fund was established to carry on that effort into the future. And then the um, Alliance for Securing Democracy? 
So the Alliance for Securing Democracy is a new initiative that's being housed at the German Marshall Fund. And we launched um, the alliance uh, earlier this summer um, in mid-July. And its mission is focused on developing comprehensive strategies to defend against and deter foreign interference in democracies and democratic institutions. Now, the, um, the, the German Marshall Fund sponsors the Manfred Werner Seminar, and I believe, Jamie, you were a fellow in 2004? Yes, that's what, correct. Tell us, tell, us what that program, seminar, yeah. tell us what that program is. Yeah, the, the Manfred Werner Seminar is one of a number of transatlantic fellowship programs that the German Marshall Fund oversees. Uh, that particular program brings together Germans and Americans, uh, I think roughly under the age of 40, once a year to visit Germany, discuss current issues and transatlantic relations uh, over the course of a, of a week. Uh, and really just, uh, it's an interesting cross-section of Americans who go. They're not all people based out of D.C. They're from across the U.S. There are people involved in state politics, in the private sector, as well as people working in public policy in, in Washington, and uh, they get to interact with uh, young Germans who uh, are from a, a similar collection of backgrounds. And for a listener's background on the German Marshall Fund, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and even the uh, Manfred Warden Seminar are, as usual, on our show notes, which are at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, including a photograph of um, when I attended the seminar in 1994. You, you can see our um, shiny little group there, and um, so yeah, it was it's it's a great program, and I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. So um, let's get into Hamilton '68, and let's start by talking about um, what it, the title Hamilton '68. So the title was inspired by actually um, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton and one of his papers in the Federalist Papers, um, Federalist Paper 68, um, in which Hamilton actually warned about the threat of foreign interference in American democracy. Even back um, in the days of our founding fathers, this was something that was seen as not only a potential threat, but as something that would be uh, a pretty existential um, kind Kind of threat to the sort of democracy that our founding fathers um, really built and constructed. And so while for many Americans who have heard about what Russia has done um, in American democracy um, and also has been doing across the European continent to undermine democracies, in fact, this is something um, that our founding fathers um, in themselves were warning against. Um, and we think that that's just really important to bear in mind because, you know, they knew what a what a risk this was. They knew how dangerous it would be for our democracy. And so that's that's the inspiration behind the name. And let's let's go back to a little bit about the inspiration behind the Russian meddling. And you you, you guys reference a 2013 um, report or um, article by the um the general of, of the um, Valerie Gerasimov, who, and basically explains that we're in a new era and the rules of war have changed where the role of non-military means of achieving political and strategic goals has grown. And in many cases, they've exceeded the power and of force of weapons and their effectiveness. 
Can you tell us about that and how that plays in? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the important things to bear in mind here is that um, the Russians do believe they're fighting a war. Um, we in the United States may not always think of it that way, uh, but that's certainly how the Russians um, and the Kremlin is, is really approaching um, their campaign, their efforts to undermine democracies, democratic institutions, weaken NATO, weaken the European Union. One of the Kremlin's biggest goals is to um, create chaos, um, which is something that we see in the um, Gerasimov um, doctrine, uh, that, that chaos is really the goal, um, and it's really about weakening others. One of the things we know about Russia is, in fact, it's a declining power. And um, one of the only ways for Vladimir Putin to be able to um, seek the kind of, of power that, that he seeks um, is to be able to weaken others so that in the relative sense, Russia grows in strength. I'm sure Jamie would like to add on this point as well. Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing, especially as Putin tries to restore some of Russia's standing uh, that, that he and others in the Kremlin leadership feel uh, was un unjustly lost after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they're resorting to these asymmetric ways of influencing uh, American democracy and undermining our democracy. Some of these tools are uh, tools that they've used in various forms for many decades. Uh, mm -hmm. So-called active, so-called active measures were deployed by the Soviet Union against the United States and uh, against European democracies uh, during the Cold War. But uh, the frightening thing, I think, is we're looking at this problem, and as you look at things like Hamilton 68 in the dashboard, uh, it's the way that they've adapted old tools to new technology and are uh, using their uh, extensive cyber capabilities. Uh, to take these old tools and to make them much more effective than they would have been uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And because of, of that, and that's, that's really, it's their meddling in, well, first you had the U.S. election, and then there was the French, the French election. And it is, was it the fact that this was a continuing issue coming from not just that 2016 wasn't a one-off? Is that, that that kind of what led to the, you guys to launch? Yes, and and in fact, 2016 and the and the U.S. election wasn't even the first time. Um, you know, we have seen Russia conducting these kinds of operations across Europe for several years. Um, they have they really started with a focus on their periphery and countries that were sort of former Soviet states. Uh, but then really began to, to spread and, and try to use these tactics elsewhere, um, whether that's um, cyber attacks conducted in Estonia aimed at undermining faith in the government there, uh, whether that's um, their full range of activities they've been undertaking in Ukraine to try to undermine um, the government there and the will of the people to choose their own future, um, which was to, to turn towards Europe. Um, they've been interfering in the Georgian um, in the Georgian democratic space for quite some time. We could keep going down the list, um, but, but you're absolutely right. This is not a one-off. Um, it was not a one-off here. It's not a one-off in Europe. And if anything, as the Russians are seeing successes, they're going to continue to expand. And you wrote a piece, I believe it was, um, both of you wrote a piece, actually, on the lessons from the U.S. election and the French election. And France responded differently than we did. 
to the threat of, of Russian inter- involvement. And can you, can you kind of walk us through that? I mean, I think uh, part of uh, the the challenge here is that many European countries, as Laura said, has, have suffered from this uh, in recent decades. So there's much more awareness in uh, most of these countries about the danger of, of this challenge. Um, in the most recent French context, um, the one major difference is that I think partly because uh, some of the, the campaigns that were involved saw the real uh, challenge, given what had just happened in the U.S., um, they had prepared themselves. So in terms of protecting their uh, campaign information, uh, being very careful about even some diversionary tactics to try to lead the Russians astray if they tried to hack into some of their files, um, to kind of muddy the waters and make it more difficult for the Russians to just immediately access uh, campaign emails and then leak them. Um, the, uh, the, the Macron campaign actually planted false information and things like that. Um, the, the leak that eventually did happen happened at the very end of the campaign, and it was actually during a period under French law where there's a, a blackout uh, of political reporting in that moment. And so it also um, kind of limited the impact that the eventual Russian attempt to interfere had, at least on the cyber, uh, in the cyber area. There were broader concerns that I think haven't been fully explored yet about Russian financial support for some of the uh, candidates and parties involved. Which is in particular, also something that uh, Le Pen, in particular, right? Uh, Le Pen, yeah. Um, and so that's an, a, a tool that they've also used uh, in other European countries, and it's an area that uh, our project will be exploring here in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, some of the differences too are uh, mean that we can't uh, translate uh, everything that's worked in Europe to the U.S. Often, media laws. Uh, are very uh, different uh, between countries, even within Europe. Right. Um, so, for instance, uh, whether certain uh, you know leaked information can be publicized, obviously with the First Amendment here in the U.S., uh, it's much more of an open debate, and so much easier if you want to get certain information out into the public domain um, than, say, for instance, in Germany. And so uh, while we're aware of those differences, we are hoping that this project, given that it is transatlantic and housed at an institution like GMF, uh, we, we can actually learn from a lot of the experiences of our European allies and hopefully uh, figure out if we can apply some of the lessons that they've learned over many years dealing with this challenge um, to our own situation here in the U.S. Now, one one question I grapple with in this is that a defining moment in Russian or or Soviet history is World War II and the fact that they were invaded and almost conquered by a right-wing nationalist government. And... Here they are, you know, after the, the millions of deaths, lives lost in World War II. Here they are, you know, half a century later, they are promoting right-wing nationalist governments in in Europe and elsewhere. And is that just historic amnesia, or is just that is that just consistent with the chaos theory? So I think one thing that's important to bear in mind is that while certainly at the moment Russia seems to be jumping on a sort of right-wing, a far-right nationalist um, populist movement that is happening across Europe, in the United States, 
in fact, what the what the Kremlin is doing is supporting extremists parties and individuals on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, I don't believe that this is ideological for Russia. Um, this is about um, the best way for them to, to sow chaos and to undermine institutions and strengthening the extremes, fanning the flames of division, fueling um, Fueling uh, fighting, uh, whether that's within parties or between, is something that they have become very good at and are doing um, extensively across both Europe and the United States. So I think the most visible examples are certainly their support for far-right nationalist parties, and I think that that's, again, them kind of jumping on what is a trend already occurring. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's really important to note that they also do support extremists on both ends of the political spectrum. In, in, in 2006 yeah, in the U.S. I was just going to add to that. I mean, I think the uh, it's a very important point because I, I think what we've seen, especially if you look at the dashboard, is that they are equal opportunity in terms of uh, who they target, uh, what which fringe, the left or right, that they amplify on any given day. Um, they are just trying to sow chaos. And it's not even just in the... Uh, disinformation space or uh, the messaging that they're pushing, you even see that in their broader foreign policy. I mean, they'll work with the Afghan government, for instance, but then Russians will covertly fund the Taliban or provide weapons on occasion. And um, so it's consistent with how they, they operate uh, in, in other spheres as well. So let's jump into Hamilton. Um, how does Hamilton work? I mean, there's a certain methodology you have for um, tracking you people's accounts to include in the dashboard. Why don't you walk us through that? So the team of researchers that we are working with um, who, who actually put the dashboard together have been tracking Russian influence operation networks on Twitter and elsewhere for more than three years. And um, what they have built here is a dashboard that monitors the content being driven by these networks. The the way that they have divided it up is, is into sort of three types of accounts that are promoting Russian influence online and that are being tracked by the dashboard. The first is attributed accounts that clearly state they are pro-Russian or affiliated with the Russian government. The second is accounts that may include both bots and humans um, that are run by troll factories, which many people may have heard about um, in Russia or elsewhere. And then the third set of accounts being tracked are run by people who um, amplify pro-Russian themes, either knowingly or unknowingly, after being influenced by the other efforts from the other two categories. So the network is, um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, sometimes people talk about this in very simplistic terms, that this is all bots. Um, that's not really the case. Um, there are certainly bots that help with the amplification efforts, but there are humans in this process. Um, some are sort of, some of the accounts are cyborgs, some of them are just straight up trolls um, that help to guide the messaging that the network is driving. And and so you then identify those accounts and do what? So 
what the dashboard does is basically seek to expose the messaging that and the themes that Russian influence operations are trying to drive. And as Jamie was saying earlier, a lot of what we see isn't actually content that's related to Russia at all. A lot of it is simply seeking to fan the flames of division, um, sow and exploit them in the U.S. context. Um, you know, we have seen things, um, some of the things that, that have been particularly notable on the dashboard have been, for instance, when there was an effort, a, a social media campaign around um, National Security Advisor McMaster and some efforts to try to get him fired, um, what we saw was that the, the Russian influence networks actually started promoting that hashtag and uh, stories related to the effort to undermine General McMaster. And in that instance, it's important to note, you know, as well, that this isn't just about fake news. That was an effort actually that started in the United States that the Russian networks um, determined was something that was in their advantage to, um, you know, to promote, to try to amplify, get greater activity behind that campaign. And so they jumped on it and helped to get it um, to trend at the point that it did. And I'm looking at the dashboard now, and it has uh, your top themes. And, um, and by the mm-hmm. way, the dashboard's available at dashboard.securingdemocracy.org. And um, Hamilton 68 tracking Russian influence on Twitter. And you list the top themes, and um, for it's a one-week period, it looks like August 28th through September 4th, and 68 stories were among the top um, of them. 25% have a primary theme of anti-Americanism. Is that, that consistent? It changes over time depending on what the messages are and the key things that they are uh, that they are picking up at different times. Um, but I think certainly, um, you know, one of the things we have seen over time is again this this attempt to um, to undermine faith in institutions. And so, what you see in what's uh, what's been trending recently, um, some of these are aimed at sort of um, criticizing the State Department, the CIA, um, the D.C. establishment, the deep state. These are all efforts to undermine our institutions, to undermine trust in those institutions, um, and to undermine people's faith in government. And again, that goes back to the, to the chaos theory. Now, Jamie may want to add on this point. Yeah, the the one thing I just note of the most recent themes, I think, um, just having watched this in the last few months, the last week was a little bit abnormal compared to prior months in that a lot of the themes in the last week were actually more traditional kind of anti-U.S., pro-Russian stories, mainly because of the diplomatic dispute about uh, closure of Russian facilities here in the U.S., and so... I think the dashboard highlighted a lot of the more overt uh, pro-Russian messaging, getting out their side of the story, criticizing the way in which the State Department and the FBI handled the closure of their facilities. Um, Whereas over the last several months, a lot of the stories were uh, more focused on American politics uh, and less focused on things that were directly relevant to to the bilateral U.S.-Russian relationship. And the the Russians are quite blunt about um, the criticism of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. There's a quote from Putin, working with people who confuse Austria and Australia is hard. 
Ouch. Um, but we got to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, I will have more on Hamilton 68. You're listening to Cybalon Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. Through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E-Digital.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Thousands affected by Hurricane Harvey urgently need support. Your donation can help the American Red Cross provide warm meals, shelter, and hope to these families. Please donate today. Go to redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS or text the word Harvey to 90999. Your support is critical. We cannot do it without you. WebmasterRadio.fm. Take your hat off, kick your feet up, and log into the feed. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with about Hamilton 68 with uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy and the German Marshall Fund. And in your article on lessons from France, um, you cite 
the fact that the former director of national intelligence, Clapper, has warned that Russia has already started to prep the battlefield for 2018. And, and we're still debating whether or not they were involved in 2016. And through the, your platform, you've one of the things you discovered is that um, they have been active on issues such as Charlottesville, including um, using uh, bots to promote and share extremist right-wing tweets and disinformation, including the fact that the, uh, the, the allegation that George Soros was paying all the protesters at Charlottesville. Can you talk about that? Yeah, what what we saw after Charlottesville was quite interesting because in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville, we really didn't see much content in this network that was directly related. There were little blips and a few things that would come and go, but it seemed like it took a few days for the networks to kind of get their messaging in order and figure out what they wanted to drive. This is not all that uncommon when there are unexpected developments and events that the networks kind of need to think through and uh, they kind of have a strategic pause. And in that time period, they'll just promote their sort of, you know, evergreen content. But after a few days, we started to see a lot of the content that you mentioned, whether that is material going after George Soros, which is something we've seen uh, the Russians do in a number of different contexts, whether that was um, promoting uh, material that was aimed at describing Antifa as a terrorist organization. In that instance, that actually started from an official Russia Today RT story that the networks then promoted. And so we saw in that instance the theme go from an overt messaging effort from RT to a covert amplification effort through the broader information operations networks as they promoted this White House petition to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. I think the thing that's important to, again, note in the Charlottesville context is this was, again, an opportunity for these uh, Russian information operations to really um, amp up and and press the themes about um, division in the United States, really seek to fan those flames of extremism. Um, we even saw some other odd things happening in the aftermath of Charlottesville in terms of some of the connections between um, various neo-Nazi um, entities and, um, and, you know, Russia, in one instance, even uh, the Daily Stormer website, um, when it got kicked off of of um, its its host here in the United States briefly re-registering in Russia before um, before its DNS server um, was was uh, denied to them. Um, so I think again, it's it's really interesting to see how how in that instance the Kremlin kind of jumped on this opportunity uh, to to fan the the flames of division. Jamie. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the fundamental challenge is we're debating kind of uh, what the level of Russian involvement was in the actual election last year, and the administration and the president have tried to spin that a certain way to discredit those who raised this uh, question by claiming that uh, people are saying that President Trump was Ill is illegitimate or things like that. That's not what this is about. I think what we're seeing and trying to highlight uh, is a much deeper problem. The Russians are not just getting involved in our democracy every two or four years to influence an election. They are 
uh, in our democracy on a daily basis right now, trying to influence what Americans read, how they think about uh, their politics and about their representatives. And uh, that, I would argue, is even much more dangerous than uh, the very real threat as well that we face with the actual elections infrastructure. Uh, but this is a much deeper problem than just making sure that as we have political campaigns that we keep foreign interference uh, out uh, completely. It's, it's a broader problem about how we think about uh, politics, how we as Americans debate these issues, and just being aware that there are other actors, including foreign governments out there, who are trying to influence our political conversations. It, it seems that maybe an appropriate analogy is is one of a you know a, a shooter in a crime scene, and it seems that the United States is going to that crime scene, seeing the body, and saying, "Okay, let's take a look at what happened. Let's not jump to any conclusions," and you know, dum de dum de dum, and ignoring the fact that it's an active crime scene. The shooter's still out there, and the shooter's still shooting. And you know they're they're whistling Dixie while they um, take their time trying to figure out what if anything happened to that first victim. The other victims are being racked up. Yeah, I, I would argue. I think it's we're going to have to steal that. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I would argue it's even more dangerous than that, though. In that the sense, uh, part of the problem right now is we have a portion of both the public and even elites here in D.C. and policymakers who won't even admit that a crime took place originally. Um, and so some of some of the debate is actually bogged down in whether you even have a victim uh, and we haven't right. overcome that initial hurdle. If, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Say something. The, um, why is that? I mean, why, I mean, why is that so hard to come to? It's just, just because... The, where that might lead? I think, yeah, I think uh, some of it is uh, a valid concern that this uh, is being used by both sides uh, to advance a particular political agenda. Um, as with almost every issue right now that's debated in Congress uh, or in the broader public, uh, you know, it's hard to form bipartisan agreement on just about anything. Right. Um, so that's just a, a, a general factor that makes progress on this issue difficult. I will say we've formed a, uh, a high caliber bipartisan advisory council filled with people who have extensive experience uh, serving in uh, administrations of both parties. We've seen also on some aspects of this issue, like securing our elections infrastructure, uh, a lot of bipartisan agreement about that challenge and about the importance of prioritizing some of those efforts. So I, I think we, we are optimistic that there are some aspects of this problem that are receiving uh, increased attention um, in, in a bipartisan manner, but uh, there is still a major hurdle to overcome just to convince many in, in the, the broader public, I'd argue especially, and this is a Republican on the right, that there there is even uh, a challenge posed by Russia right now. And just, just and for I, a I list, would just go add ahead, I was just going to add to that maybe what you were going to say, um, which is, in fact, that, that Jamie and I ourselves represent this bipartisanship in which exactly. we are approaching this. Um, 
uh, both of us have worked extensively in the national security fields. Um, I, um, part of my experience in past was serving as Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor. Um, Jamie served as Marco Rubio's foreign policy advisor. Um, and there's a whole host of issues on which Jamie and I wouldn't agree. Um, but one thing that we believe is that our democracy is a, is a transcendent issue, um, that it's absolutely a, a national security concern if our democracy is under threat. Um, and, and for me as well, um, and I think Jamie shares this, I, I think that it's, it's of strategic importance that we respond to these threats in a bipartisan way because, um, in fact, given everything we've already talked about with the way that Russia tries to sow and exploit divisions and that so much of their strategy is based on that, in fact, um, the more we respond to this um, activity in a partisan way, it frankly plays into the Russian strategy. And so I think bipartisanship on this issue is absolutely essential. And what do you think we should be doing? Obviously, what this platform does allows journalists to see when certain parts of the debate are really being pushed by an outside interest. But is what what would you like to see Washington or you know Sacramento and Albany do? So we are in the process of of working through a whole the development of a whole series of recommendations um, on on a wide range of issues across the entire toolkit. So in the information operations space, cybersecurity, the financial space that Jamie mentioned, um, and there's other pieces of this Russian toolkit that we're going to be looking at. And you know, I think um, specifically on, on this question, you know, one of the things that we know is that um, the social media companies have been wrestling with how to address these issues. Um, Facebook um, has taken some steps. I, I think that there's still a lot more that needs to be done in order to combat the way that not only fake news, um, which I think is, is a less than useful term at this point, exactly. um, but really, again, how, how these, you know, so much of what we see is this amplification of other messages. It's, it's a contortion of the information environment um, in a way that, um, that doesn't reflect any sense of of reality and allows um, nefarious actors to sort of pervert the conversation. And so there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done to figure out how we actually ensure that these technologies that were developed, in fact, to promote openness, to promote greater access to information, to promote transparency, to empower people, you know, are, aren't being used for the exact opposite purposes, which is what we're seeing right now. And I think you've been critical of Twitter because it is 20% of Twitter users are bots, which that somehow limits their ability to respond or maybe makes them less likely to respond to an attack that's largely through bots. Yeah, I think that the the bot problem on Twitter is is one significant part of the problem. Um, I think it's, it's not the full extent of the problem, um, but certainly uh, there's a lot that needs to be done to address the the various operations on that platform. Now, um, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt anyone, but there's also the issue here. Unlike you know some of the European counterparts, the First Amendment that. Um, you know, we, we don't want to restrict speech, and we have still maintained this Jeffersonian um, idea of you know a marketplace of ideas, but the marketplace is being skewed by 
basically this forced amplification, as as you described. How do you how in terms of policymakers, what what guidance do you give them for balancing this with First Amendment? I mean, I, I think there this is that makes it incredibly difficult uh, in the U.S. context to regulate this from right. the top down. I mean, I think there are certain aspects of the broader foreign influence problem when it gets into, you know, our, our elections infrastructure and securing that, that we can have more of a federal role, perhaps longer term. But when it comes to combating uh, the disinformation being pushed, especially through social media, uh, it's incredibly difficult. We also don't want to curb our vibrant tech sector in the United States. I mean, in the 21st century, that's going to be uh, you know, U.S. advancements in technology and uh, artificial intelligence uh, will be key to maintaining U.S. power in the in the world. And so, we also don't want to become over, overly regulated in in that sense as well. So, I think a lot of what uh, the, really the first step of all of this, and um, what Americans should be asking of themselves, is are they informed consumers and smart consumers of information? Um, and it's, you know, I think part of the problem is as social media, use of social media has exploded uh, and traditional uh, news sources, whether it's newspapers or t- traditional broadcast networks, um, have, have lost their dominant hold on how Americans consume information. We haven't really had an updating of our education system uh, or even just kind of the practices of how people consume uh, and find information on a daily basis. And so some of this, I think, is just raising awareness that people uh, looking at something like Hamilton 68 and making people on Twitter who are engaged in political conversations to maybe think, why is this in my feed? Why is this particular account pushing certain information? Who is really behind that account? Um, similar uh, questions should be raised about users of Facebook. Uh, why is a particular angle being pushed on uh, my newsfeed, and how did that get there? Uh, and you know, what, based on my interests, uh, led this to show up? And if people are a little bit smarter about kind of taking the time to learn about uh, how their social media accounts operate, why certain things appear there, using some of the privacy settings that allow you to actually control a little bit more of the type of information you get and the sources you receive information from. I mean, I think that's one very positive step that uh, people can do uh, themselves uh, initially just to start moving in the right direction on this challenge. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll, we'll wrap up this segment and um, hear about how you can follow this platform, Hamilton 68. Um, you're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. You are now tuned in to the world. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. 
Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. WebmasterRadio.fm. Welcome to the place your competitors get their edge. Jump on it. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And this is Bennett Kelly. We're talking with Laura Rosenberger and Jamie Fly with the German Marshall Fund and Alliance for Securing Democracy about their new platform, Hamilton 68. And we only have a few minutes left. But I do have one important question. I know your platform's only been out for not even five weeks, it seems. But have you seen it being used by the media as a way to report on what stories are you're kind of being bogus or being bot driven. Yeah, we've actually seen um, the the dashboard be used um, very quickly, actually, in in very much the way that we hoped it would be. Um, and as you said, for journalists to be able to see, um, and and frankly, you know, any Americans to really be able to go and see uh, how different messaging campaigns, how different themes are being um, influenced by Russian operations and. There's the Fire McMaster campaign that I mentioned earlier. We right. talked about Charlottesville and some of the messaging around that. Um, there have been other campaigns that I think reporters have picked up on that have been um, amplified by the Russian operations, including some targeting of Senator McConnell and Senator Flake um, in August. And so I think um, we we have seen it um, be you know pretty early success in in that way. And I would note too that that you know this is the reason why we really wanted to be able to. to to provide a tool that can be used for analysis, not just by us um, internally, um, because you know, we can do our own analysis and, and we'll be doing a good bit of that as well as we go forward. But we also think it's really important to be shining a light um, and provide transparency on, on this. As Jamie was saying earlier, too, the goal of this is for people to be able, you know, consumers of information to be able to be more informed about um, who may be influencing the information they're getting and and who may be interested in pushing certain themes. And so um, we've been really glad to see it being um, used in in that way. And does that does that carry with it a stigma for people who then continue to you know assert that you know, for example George Soros paid for um, the the protesters in Charlottesville? I think that, um, you know, obviously we were talking earlier about the First Amendment and free speech, and in this country it is absolutely um, core to our democracy. Um, And so people have the right to say what they want to say and and believe what they want to believe. But I think every individual needs to make up their own mind about 
about how they how they think about those things. Um, and and I think that there's two different impacts that that exposing these kinds of efforts can have. One is on the sort of resiliency side, making people, um, you know, more aware of where information may be coming from and therefore less susceptible to efforts to to influence them um, in the way that the Russians are doing. But the other is a bit of a deterrent effect. Um, we've seen the Russians uh, respond already to our efforts. Um, they've taken us on in a number of um, Sputnik articles and a uh, number of comments from various um you know, Russian government officials, um, you know, we, we take that as a sign that uh, they're paying attention and we've struck a bit of a nerve. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's also um, the kind of effect that we're looking to have to really be able to to not just expose this, but to, to have a, an active effect in pushing back on these kinds of efforts. I think that is important, obviously. If, if, obviously, if Russia thinks it's important enough to push back on you, clearly you've got their attention. Clearly, we have. And um, so we only have yeah, a few I, minutes I think left. A, a, Go a ahead, Jim. I was just going to say a, a key part of that is uh, shining. I mean, the, the dashboard shines a spotlight, a spotlight on an aspect of of this problem, but the broader alliance, uh, one of our kind of primary purpose is just to raise awareness and to shine that spotlight on these various tools. And as Laura noted, we have already seen this Russian reaction. And I think they clearly do not want an open public debate about their activities. Um, yes, they like to fan the flames of some of the political divisions and differences about what actually happened last year, but uh, they do not want more exposure of the details of how they're trying to use these tools. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged be because of Hamilton 68, but at the same time, I'm wondering whether people will just still consume the information the same way, regardless. And, and you know, hopefully that that won't happen. It's just that after 2016, where it just seemed that there was so much information out there, um, but people still seemed to just follow what was in their silo. And um, so that's, the I think, the challenge ahead of us. I, I want to give you guys a chance to say, you know, um, we, on, we on the show notes, we have... Um, your website, and we have uh, links to your Twitter account. Um, anything, if people want to follow you, or do you have any events coming up that you want to plug before we sign off? Yeah, I think uh, you know the the website link, as you noted, it's dashboard.securingdemocracy.org. Um, we also have a blog um, on our on our overall website, which is um, www.securingdemocracy.org, where we'll be continuing to put out content and analysis on these and other issues related to the toolkit that the Russians are using to undermine democracy. Our uh, Twitter account, uh, the handle is um, Secure Democracy, um, and you can follow along there for updates on what we are producing ourselves as well as news related to all these issues um, and we're certainly going to be having events going forward that we'll be uh, we'll be posting there now Laura you were a uh, National Security Council director for China and Korea um, this must be a pretty slow week for you <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I spent um, a good chunk of my life working on North Korea issues, um, both when I was at the National Security Council and when I was at the State Department before that. And um, I have to say, having um, worked the aftermath of, of um, 
three North Korean nuclear tests when I was in government, um, and then a number of them um, from the outside. It's a uh, it's a really really um, bad situation, and um, you know I, I think that um, I, I think it's it's you know for all my colleagues who are still in government, um, I know that they're they're doing their best to to try to get a strategy together, which I certainly hope that they can they can do. Well, we're going to keep our fingers crossed on that. And thank you both, um, Jamie and Laura. You were great. And best of luck with the Hamilton 68 project. I only have a few minutes left. A very um, best of luck to the people in the path of Hurricane Irma, the largest, excuse me, the largest uh, Atlanta hurricane in history. So be safe, everyone, and hope everyone um, is can go somewhere where they can be safe and dry. Um, we'll be back next week here. Uh, we'll be covering the, one of the new startup hubs, in, and believe it or not, it's Detroit. So um, check out our show notes here at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio, and also check out the Internet Law Center. We're at internetlawcenter.net. Thank our guests again, and we'll be back next week. This is Bennett Kelly. Thank you for joining us on Cyberlaw and Business Report. See you next week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.